Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. 1 Samuel chapter 17. And just a little quick refresher on where we are. Uh, The kingship of Saul is in the midst of crashing and burning. Um, So he was anointed by Samuel, obviously chosen by God, anointed by Samuel, installed as king. At first things looked great. He led the people of Israel in a a victory, a strong victory against the Ammonites who were pressing in. And the people said, yes, this is our king, this is our champion. And it looked like things were going to go well. But then there were a few episodes in chapters 15, uh, 14 and, and 15 where uh, Saul seems to disregard God's word. He seems to belittle or, or, or not really recognize the importance of his role as being subservient to the word of God through his prophet, Samuel. And so there were ways that, that Saul sort of did his own thing and cut some corners and found some shortcuts, and God was not pleased. And in fact, in chapter 15, uh, God removed from Saul the kingship. Now, that doesn't mean that he's actually not currently king. He remains on the throne as the at least uh, ostensible leader of the nation of Israel, but God's anointing of Saul is gone. God has removed, it tells us, his spirit from Saul. And he's indeed chosen a new king for himself. And in chapter 16, the last time we were uh, in 1 Samuel, we met a young shepherd from Bethlehem named David. And God had chosen David to become the new king. And he sent Samuel to Bethlehem to anoint David as the king. You may remember he told him, I have chosen for myself among the sons of Jesse a king. And so Samuel went to Bethlehem and Jesse paraded his seven sons in front of him, some of them tall and impressive and strong. And God said one by one, I haven't chosen him. I haven't chosen him. I haven't chosen him. Finally, Samuel said, do you have any other sons? Because there's nobody here that God's chosen. Jesse said, well, there's one, but he's like, just the runt of the family and he is with the sheep right now. Do you want me to get him? So sure enough, it's the runt with the sheep that God had chosen. And we learned an important lesson there that God looks on the heart while man looks on the outward appearance. And so God has a totally different way of seeing. So he has anointed David, the shepherd boy from Bethlehem, to become the new king. Now he's not yet the king, but he will be the king. But we do learn at the end of chapter 16 that the spirit of God is with David. It said, from that day forward, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. So even though he's not yet formally in the role of king, and in fact, the nation of Israel doesn't know him at all at this point. uh, Nevertheless, the Spirit of God is upon David to strengthen him, enable him, and equip him for the role that he has chosen him for. And so now we come to chapter 17, which brings us to maybe one of the most best-known, best-loved stories in all the Bible. It's the story, of course, of David and Goliath, the giant of the Philistines who came out to do battle with them. One of the best-known stories 
Indeed, even in secular kind of pop culture, a story of an underdog bravely taking on an unbeatable foe is dubbed a David and Goliath story. You've probably heard that before. It's very common. If you were a church kid like me, you grew up in Sunday school hearing this story over and over. You probably even remember some, some cool artwork, you know, these paintings that depicted, you know, this young kid with a slingshot and this tall, you know, strapping guy with all this armor, right? Um, and so it's well-known, it's well-loved. The story's been told many, many times. But it's also maybe among the most abused stories in the Bible, maybe misunderstood and misapplied at times. Sometimes it's interpreted so allegorically to render its historicity almost inconsequential, like the stones that David picks up represent you know, humility and tenacity and faithfulness or whatever. Like, so we have like everything in the story represents something else. So there's ways that the, the story has been taken and misread and then misapplied. Um, maybe most commonly, look at David's courage. Now you go be courageous. And now you have the burden on your shoulders of, I have to go be like David. And that's a hard message to take. So we're going to tell the story. It's a familiar story, so I don't want to spend a huge amount of time retelling it. But we will walk through uh, the way that it unfolds in, in the, the scriptures here. We'll tell the story, and then I want to draw out two major implications. One, uh, kind of a practical application, a practical message, and the other, a, a more theological truth, a theological message. We'll get to that. So let's just look to the story. So chapter 17 begins with the clouds gathering. Look there in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. Oh, no. This always is a recipe for trouble for the people of Israel because the Philistines are their strongest, largest foe at this time. The Philistines have way better technology. The Philistines have way more people. The Philistines have way stronger military uh, plans and armies. And the Philistines are constantly battling with the people of God. If you'll remember, the Philistines were supposed to have been wiped off the map back in the day of Joshua when God led the people of Israel into the land of Canaan and told them, get rid of all the pagan idol-worshiping people in the land so that they won't corrupt you and you won't be tempted to worship their gods. But Israel never really fully obeyed that command, and so the Philistines have remained there. And In fact, it seems they've grown, and they're this global power again. And so the fact that they're kind of a thorn in the side of Israel is a constant reminder of their failure to, to follow through with God's commands in the first place. So the Philistines have gathered for battle. In the first 11 verses, we have this description of a, what seems to be an impossible enemy. They've gathered. They're each, the, the Israel's on one side of this big valley on a mountain, and Philistines are on the other side of this valley, and they're lined up for days, right? And in fact, it tells us for 40 days that this champion of the Philistines named Goliath comes forward and calls to the people of Israel, send someone to me to fight. Look at verse 4. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. Gath, one of the cities of Philistia whose height was six cubits and a span. That's roughly nine and a half feet. So it doesn't tell us he's a giant. We often hear like David fights this giant. So it's not like 
some different race or kind of people, right? It's not like Hagrid or something from Harry Potter, right? It's, he's just a really big guy. Nine feet tall is pretty big. I've never seen anybody quite that tall. He's a very tall guy, strong. Uh, and he had, we have all this emphasis on all of his weaponry and, and his armor. Look at verse 5. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze arm on his legs. He had a javelin of bronze between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. So he has a person designated to just hold his shield, right? So this dude... He's got all the bronze and iron and metal and armor and swords and spears that you can imagine. So this is a fierce, intimidating, strong opponent. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And then he makes this deal with him in verse 9. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And of course, that's probably more than just a friendly servitude. Like, you just kind of do some work for us. Because you might remember the Ammonites had threatened to gouge out the right eye of every person of Israel and make them and then make them slaves. So th these are not nice guys, right? These, there would be uh, humiliation and, and, uh, and oppression involved here. So Goliath says, if you can send somebody out here to fight me and kill me, then we'll serve you. Of course, Goliath has no thought in his mind that that's actually possible, that anybody from the ranks of Israel is going to challenge him or be able to defeat him in battle. But the Philistines are pretty confident in their champion. And the Philistines said, verse 10, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So Saul, remember, anointed the king of Israel, given the job of fighting against the enemies of God's people. And at the time, empowered with the Spirit of God to do that. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul, and he went out to conquer the enemies of God, right? So, that's what Saul was supposed to be doing. <clears throat> what Saul should have done, how, how verse 11 should read, is Saul, with the Holy Spirit having rushed upon him, led the Israelites against the Philistines and obliterated them, right? It should read something more like that. But here is Saul cowering in fear along with the rest of Israel. And no one dares to answer the charge or the, the challenge of this Philistine champion. So for 40 days, Goliath keeps coming forward and saying, anybody going to come fight me? Anybody? Crickets. Nobody is coming. Now David, verse 12 begins, was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse. So we actually get a little bit of kind of the more an introduction to David again. And Jesse has sent all of his sons, the older seven, to battle. Well, they're on the, the lines going, ah, I don't want to go fight Goliath. But David has stayed home. Remember, he's the youngest. He is the shepherd. And so David is home keeping the sheep. And Jesse sends him back and forth from the lines of battle to the house to bring things to his brothers 
to bring word back home of how things are going and how his brothers are faring, because obviously Jesse's concerned about his sons. And so Jesse sends David uh, to the, the battlefield to bring some bread and things to his brothers. Verse 17, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. In other words, come back and tell me how, how they're doing. So David is now coming to uh, the, the soldiers who are gathered and afraid and uh, not engaging in Goliath's challenge. And in verses 24 through 30, David actually begins sort of encouraging and trying to stir up strength and faith among the soldiers. Look at verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him, were much afraid. Same thing as always. <clears throat> the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. Listen, so Saul has apparently said, Hey, anybody who goes out there and kills a Goliath, um, you're going to be rich, and I'm going to give you my daughter to marry, which means you're going to be royalty, uh, and you won't pay taxes for the rest of your life. That's some pretty strong incentive. And still, nobody is budging. Like, uh, royalty, riches, tax-free. Look at that dude. I'm still not going out. I'm not having it. So nobody is doing it. And David said, verse 29, uh, excuse me, not 29, 26, David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The people answered him in the same way. So shall be done to the man who kills him. Right? And so David hears the taunts of, of Goliath. And instead of being afraid, instead of cowering in fear, running back home, <coughs> Excuse me. Instead of running back home, David starts to say to the soldiers, why are you so afraid? And I think that question, what shall the king do for the man who defeats this, this champion, I don't think is as much like, oh, I'm interested in that stuff, as much as it is, why does that matter? What, what, is, what could the king possibly do for somebody? Why is that the motivation here? This uncircumcised Philistine has defied the ranks of the living God. So David, finally, somebody injects a little bit of God into the story. A little bit of faith and a reminder. Don't you know whose people we are? I think it's kind of what David is doing here. Now, Eliab, verse 28, his oldest brother, gets annoyed with David. His anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? In other words, like, don't you know your place? You're supposed to be back home with the sheep. What do you think you're doing here among the armies of Israel? And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? Like, I can't even talk. So, yeah, a little bit of the sibling, you know, kind of bickering going on. Probably a familiar scene for many of us. And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. Now, Eliab was probably a little bit bitter toward David because of the events of chapter 16. Remember, Eliab was paraded in front of Samuel, and Samuel went, God hasn't chosen you. Actually, I've chosen your runty little shepherd brother. He's the one that I've anointed. Right? So Eliab is probably like not a big fan of David at this point. Probably jealous of him. Nevertheless, David is now among the ranks of Israel and trying to remind them who they serve. 
the God that they worship. And so the words of David among the soldiers are repeated before Saul, verse 31. And so Saul sends for him. All right, come, come talk to me. And so David says to Saul the same thing. Look at verse 32. Let no man's heart fail him because your servant will go out and fight with this Philistine. So David's like, I'll do it. I'll go and fight this guy. Saul says, you can't. You're just a kid. David says, look at verse 34. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. When there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. This is a pretty serious guy. <clears throat> He's fighting lions and bears on behalf of his sheep. So don't think of a shepherd as a weak, mild person. A shepherd had a hard job. A shepherd had to defend and fight against enemies who would take his sheep away. And in fact, he was so devoted to his father and the sheep that belonged to his family that he would fight against lions and bears to protect his sheep. That's a pretty, uh, pretty stout guy. And so he says, listen, I've fought lions and bears. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. Why? For he has defied the armies of the living God. He's like, listen, there's room in the lion and bear pile for a Philistine who is shouting and blaspheming against God. I can add him to that pile. Right? So there's, there's confidence here on the part of David, to be sure. And David said, verse 37, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So don't think that David's confidence is just like swagger. It's just like bravado. I kill lions and bears. Because he recognizes it's God that gave him the strength and delivered him from the hand of, or the paw of, the bear and the lion. And he, has, he takes that very same confidence into this situation. The Lord will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Nobody else in all Israel seems to believe that. But David says, I know God. I know that he'll deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. So I will go and fight. And so Saul said to him, go, and the Lord be with you. So again, another glimpse of Saul, who should be leading the charge fighting the battles of the people of Israel, he is now sending a runty shepherd boy into battle with this nine and a half foot tall champion. Sure, go for it. If you want to take him on, more power to you, seems to be what he's saying. So Saul commissions him, as it were, go and the Lord be with you. He tries to give him all this armor. Here, take this sword. Here, take this helmet. Here, take this mail. And all of it is just too big and heavy and clunky and David's too small and he says I can't I can't do this I can't take all this stuff and so verse 40 says he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch his sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine so David the shepherd goes into battle on behalf of the people of Israel not with swords and spears and armor, but with a shepherd's staff and a slingshot and a few stones. And out he goes. And so now David and Goliath are face to face. Look at verse 41. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with the shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, 
He disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Remember, the Philistines worship false gods. We met at least one of them back in chapter 5, Dagon. And so Goliath, by these false gods, curses David. And the Philistine says, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David, he's got a little bit of trash talk of his own to give back. David said, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. So he's like, all right, just as much as you say you're going to feed me to the birds of the air, like I'm going to feed you and all of your Philistine army hosts to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field, right? So David is right back with him. But why? Because the Lord, I, I come not with sword and spear, but in the name of of the Lord whom you have defied. David knows you put yourself in a real bad situation here, Goliath, because you are defying, you are blaspheming the name of the God of Israel. And so you are not in a good situation. And look at his last phrase. He says, I will you know, give the dead bodies of all the Philistines to the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And that apparently is enough of an incentive in terms of kind of the back and forth banter and trash talking, if you will, for Goliath to go, all right, enough. And he's coming forward. When the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, and slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. This is like a first-round knockout. This is not a long, drawn-out, you know, end of a movie scene where it's like, is he going to win? Oh, no, he's beaten to a pulp, and hopefully he'll come back with one last strength. You know, like, he's not, like, summoning some strength at the very end of his rope and and finally just barely overcoming this is like here comes this giant and he goes boom and he's down and that's it and it's over the philistine is on the ground verse 50 so david prevailed over the philistine with a sling and with a stone which is a little bit like you're supposed to go oh wow yeah that's like nothing he struck the philistine and killed him there was no sword in the hand of david Again, like emphasizing, David killed this Philistine with like nothing, with like a rock. He didn't even have a sword. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. That part usually gets left out of the children's Bibles. Um, he cuts off his head with it and I assume holds it up so that all the Philistines can see, dude, that's Goliath's head. That's our champion that has been crushed and defeated and beheaded now. 
by this Israelite shepherd. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they ran away. Whoa, run away! And off they go. And so the Israelites pursue them and they strike them down. It says as far as Gath and Ekron, and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camp. David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. And he put his armor in his tent. So here is David with, carrying around the head of this defeated Philistine champion. Okay, who won this one? Right? This is what happens when somebody defies the name of the living God. I think that's what is in David's mind as he's parading with the head of Goliath. And in the last few verses, uh, Saul inquires about David and, and tries to find out whose who son he is, and, and which, which all provides kind of a segue really into the next chapter and the next kind of stretch of the drama, which is going to be this kind of spiral of jealousy and, and battling between Saul and David, because Saul now recognizes David is you know, replacing him and all this. So that just kind of sets the scene for what comes next. So that's the story, right? That's the way that this unfolds. So David, this unlikely champion, becomes the hero, becomes the savior for the people of Israel as he goes forward against Goliath, not with strength, not with armor, not with sword, but with the name of God, in the name of God. So I think there's two, as I said earlier, two major things that I think that God intends to communicate to his people through this story. One of them is a practical application and the other is more a theological message. So let's take those in turn. The practical application, I think, is this. What God intends for us as readers of 1 Samuel in the 21st century, what he, what he wants us to come away with is this. God will fight for his people when we prioritize his honor. God will fight for his people when we prioritize his honor. That's what's going on here with David. The ob now, the obvious virtue on display in David is courage. And that's usually what our thoughts about this passage center around. You know, David's example of courage in the face of impossible odds. And then we turn that into an exhortation, right? To trust God and be brave in the face of our own adversities. Like, you'll, you'll fight many Goliaths in your day. And if you trust God, you can have the courage to fight, you know, fight your enemies kind of a deal. And so that's the way that we tend to take and kind of apply this passage. But I don't think it's the real point of the story. I don't think the real point of the story is, wow, look at David's courage and go be like him. The real point of the story isn't seen by looking at David's courage, but by asking what's behind it. Why was David courageous? What is it in David's heart that makes him willing, confident even, to walk into a deadly battle knowing full well what's at stake? A superficial answer might say David had faith, and that's what made him courageous. So then the exhortation turns from be courageous to have more faith. Okay, great. That helps me a lot. It is true at some level, right, that faith in David's heart in, in, enables him to be courageous. But I think it's still too on the surface. There's a value in David's heart and mind that undergird his faith. Something he holds to be so fundamental and so important that he believes he can take bold, death-defying action with peace and confidence. He has such confidence because he knows that as long as he's championing this virtue, fighting to defend this value, that he will have God's strength behind him. 
So that becomes the question. What is it that David values so highly? What treasure is David holding in his heart that leads him to faith-fueled, death-defying courage? And I think the answer to that is the honor of God's name. The honor of God's name. And you can see that by listening to David's words in this passage. And if you consider that these are the first words that David speaks in the Bible, it's a really strong introduction to him as a person, as a, you know, we say character. I don't mean that because it's fictional. But in the unfolding story and drama of the Bible, of God's people, This introduction to David gives us such a glimpse into his heart and what drives him. And maybe something about what God saw there. When he said, God looks on the heart while man looks on the outward appearance. Maybe when God looks into David's heart, what he sees is that David honors God above all else. David is committed to the honor of God. It comes through loud and clear when you look at his dialogue throughout this chapter. He speaks to three different audiences throughout the chapter. He speaks to uh, the soldiers on the hillside. Then he speaks to King Saul, just before Saul commissions him. And then, of course, he speaks to Goliath himself. And let's just look quickly again at what he says to each of those audiences. Back in verse 26, as he was going among the ranks of the soldiers and asking about, uh, this, about Goliath, he says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. In other words, who does this guy think he is? This is what David is asking about Goliath. Nobody else in the Israelite army had, had, had dared to have that kind of thought. They're probably thinking more like, who am I to go out and fight against this guy? He's huge. He's got all these weapons, right? And David looks at this guy and goes, who does he think he is? He's an uncircumcised Philistine. What does that mean? He's not a part of the covenant people of God. He is an idol worshiper. He is a blasphemer. What ground does he have to be confident? That is David's attitude about Goliath because he is not honoring God. He's defying, he is an uncircumcised Philistine and he is defying the armies of the living God. Another contrast there. Goliath and the Philistines, they're gods. They're stone and wood. They're fake. They're not alive. There's only one living God and he fights for Israel. So who's this guy think he is to defy the armies of the living God? David cannot believe that a pagan idol worshiper has the audacity to blaspheme against God by railing against his covenant people. So even there, as he's speaking to the soldiers, you get this glimpse of what David is thinking, what David is valuing. We're the people of the living God. Who does he think he is? Then he goes and speaks to Saul in verse 32 to 37. Look at what he says there. I'm just uh, read some of this to you again. Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. Saul says, you can't. You're just a youth. But David said to Saul, verse 34, your servant used to keep your sheep. When there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb, I went after him. I struck him. I delivered it out of his mouth. If he rose against me, I caught him and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this, and that same phrase again, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. Why? Because he has defied the armies of the living God. And here's his source of confidence. The, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He 
he is confident that God will give him the victory, not just because David is really good at killing lions and bears, but because he's fighting for God's honor. He's defied the armies of the living God. He's belittled God himself. God will give me this victory. He's confident of that. And then when he goes and speaks to Goliath in verses 45 and 47, he says much the same thing to, to Goliath. He says, I will feed you and all of your Philistine hosts to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Why? So that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hand. His confidence is not, I'm really good at fighting. His confidence is not, we're great in underdog situations. We just make clutch plays and come back. That's not, that's not his confidence. His confidence is, we're fighting for the honor of Yahweh. We are fighting to uphold the reputation of God. And so when I defeat you, all the world will know that there's a God in Israel. And everybody that's gathered here on this mountain right now will know that God saves, not with the sword and spear. The battle is the Lord's. So he rebukes Goliath's insolence toward God. And he assures him that it will soon be plain to everyone watching that Israel's living God is the one true God. David's faith in God and bravery in the face of terrible threat are fueled by a deep-seated concern for the honor of God's name, for his reputation among his people and among the nations, for God's power and glory to be seen and known and reverenced. This is what it means to hold the honor of God's name in high regard. We might say this is what it means to have a high view of God. It's to say his honor, his reputation, his glory are more important than anything else. So what would this, how does this affect us today? What, what is a practical takeaway for us with that in mind? If you want God to fight your battles for you, you'd better make sure that the battles you're fighting are his battles. The battles you're fighting are about his glory, not yours. So often the battles we fight and the things we get caught up in and the stuff we spend so much of our time and energy and resources and mental space thinking about and fretting about and planning for and strategizing about have nothing to do with the glory of God. How do I advance my career? How do I help this relationship? How do I look better at school? Whatever it is, we have all kinds of things that we wrestle with that have nothing to do with the glory of God. And I don't think we have any promise from God that he's going to fight our battles for us if the battles we're fighting have nothing to do with him, are not about his honor. In your life, this drama probably won't play out on a battlefield with, a, with pagan armies looking on like it does for David. Probably nothing quite so dramatic. It will play out in daily decisions, seemingly small moments, where you'll have to make a choice. Am I going to care more about my reputation or God's? Am I going to engage in ungodly conversations that glorify sin and wickedness? Or am I going to take a stand for what's right? 
Am I going to laugh right along with everyone else at movies, shows, and comedians who belittle God and revile Christian faith? Or am I going to turn off the TV? Am I going to quietly listen to my coworker rattle off racist slurs and political talking points? Or am I going to speak up and defend the image of God and human beings he's created? Am I going to speak of Jesus and his gospel to this unbelieving friend or family member? Or am I going to keep quiet out of embarrassment and a desire not to be thought of as strange or too religious or something? It's moments like this and decisions like this where we've got to pick a battle. Am I going to battle for the honor and reputation of God? Or am I going to be more concerned about my own reputation, my own glory, what people think of me? If we concern ourselves with God's glory, as David does in 1 Samuel 17, and the things that are important to him, we can be assured of his strengthening and sustaining presence. If we fight the battles before us with zeal for God's honor in our hearts, we can declare along with David, the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Remember after all the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where Jesus said to his disciples, go, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And what does he say at the very end of that? Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. To the extent that we put our resources and time and heart into the battle that he wants us to fight, namely, making disciples, we have his promise that he's with us. That's the very same thing. The battle is the Lord's. If we're about the work of making disciples, we know we have his strength behind us because that's what he's called us to do. And that's about his honor and his glory, not ours. If you want God to fight your battles for you, make sure the battles you're fighting are his battles. But there's a theological truth. There's a theological message that God, I believe, wants to communicate in the story of David and Goliath, and it's this. God will send his people a savior. God will send his people a savior. And if you think about the various audiences for this account, each audience needs to hear it. Going back to the, the people who are actually in this story, the Israel in Samuel's day needed to know this. They needed to know God will send them a savior. You see, Saul's kingship had gone terribly, and it was ending in disgrace. And now their fiercest and most frightening enemies are staring them down on the verge of annihilating them. And in walks David, an unlikely hero, not a strapping warrior with artillery, but a runty shepherd with a slingshot and a heart full of faith in Israel's God. The people of Israel on that hillside needed to know God's going to fight for us. God's going to send us a champion who will fight our battles for us. And David comes in just the right moment to remind them, I have someone for you. I will send a Savior. Down the road a bit, think about the original audience of this book. So this would have been some time, some years later. And by then, the people reading the book of Samuel know well the story of David. 
And they have seen what comes. They would have been deeply familiar with David, not just as a small-town shepherd, but as God's anointed king, the deliverer of Israel from the terrible Philistines and the recipient of God's covenant promise, which comes in 2 Samuel chapter 7. A ruler from your line will sit on the throne forever. That's the promise God makes to David. There's someone that will come from your family that will be a forever king. And so the people who read the book of 1 Samuel know how that all unfolded. When David appears on the scene in this book, the original readers must be whooping and hollering, knowing as they do the stunning salvation that God brought to them that day and in the years to come through this shepherd king. And they needed the reminder, look how God came through for us. Look how God provided a champion for us. And the church today needs to be reminded of this, no less. When Israel was in desperate need, up against an impossible enemy, and utterly out of strength and courage, God sent them a Savior in Jesse's youngest son. And just as he provided salvation for his people through David, he provides salvation for his people today and forever through David's greater son, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ. You see, usually when we hear this story, we like to identify ourselves with David, right? We see his courage and admire his faith, and we tell ourselves, take heart. We too can face our enemies with confidence and courage. But the truth is, if you and I are to be identified with a character in this story, it's not faithful David going out against the giant. It's weak-hearted Saul and his soldiers trembling on the hillside in need of a champion. That's where we would fall in this story. Not the champion fighting God's battles, but the people on the hillside afraid and helpless and in need of a champion. And if we're back on the hillside, frightened and helpless, the champion who stands in our place and goes out against our enemies is the Lord Jesus. Jesus fought against the greatest enemy of our souls, namely our own sin and the just wrath of God upon us. Sin, flesh, and the devil stood against us, and we were condemned, and we were doomed for judgment and destruction, and Jesus stood in our place. If we're on one hillside, and sin and the devil and judgment is on the other hillside, Jesus is the one who walked out into the battlefield. Not with swords and spears, he said himself. I do not come with a sword, right? But in humility, in meekness, in limitation, taking on human flesh and form. He comes not to fight, but to give himself for us. To sacrifice his life so that we might know him and have the hope of eternity. 1 Corinthians 15, one of the most glorious chapters in all the Bible. It ends with this reflection on the victory of Jesus over death. He's speaking of when Paul, the Apostle Paul here is speaking of, uh, of when we will be changed into his likeness in, in eternity. He says, this perishable body must put on the imperishable. 
This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The battle is the Lord's. He's fought it and he's won it for us. All we have to do is rest in his completed work, knowing that the enemy of our souls has been crushed and we are now his precious children. And as we go forward in his name, as we now are ambassadors of this Savior and the ones who carry this message of life and redemption and, and, and healing to the people around us, the world around us, we go with the honor of God, the glory of God, the reputation of God as our chief value. And we are willing to face hardship, embarrassment, humiliation, persecution for the sake of his honor, that his story might be told and that we might be faithful to him. And when we do that, when we fight, when we speak, when we live with his glory and his honor as our highest value, we can be confident that he will fight the battle for us. The battle is the Lord's. Let's pray.